I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest for this podcast is the beautiful Zoe Routh. Zoe and I met through the Thought Leaders Business School a few years ago and have bonded over many things in the intervening years, including our commitment and our passion for helping leaders be better leaders, but also because we both are chicken mothers and we often share stories about how our chickens destroy our veggie gardens. Thanks so much, Zoe, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Mel. I'm just laughing about the chooks. My chooks are so old. They turned 10 this year that they cannot be bothered to destroy anything in the garden. Oh, my God. I know. We have never had a chicken who has lived more than four years. It's the breed. So we've our, our girls are big, so they're aracuna, so they're big, hefty chook. And I think the larger the chook, the more endurance they have. They're like the little eyes of browns. The little tiny ones, they only last a couple of years. But yeah, our yeah. girl's 10 years old. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Does she, do they lay eggs still or have they? Uh, one gotcha. of them was uh, laying eggs in the lead up to summer. So mm-hmm. every other day she'd lay an egg. It hasn't been any since we've had the fires and the heat and the hail mm-hmm. and the whatever. So not for about four or five months now. But yeah, still laying That's amazing. I had a friend who took rescue chickens in and he had a chicken who was 12 and she laid an egg once a week until she died from when she was about eight. And I just, and they were massive (laughs) because she was a big chicken and they were big eggs. Like they were 80 to 100 gram eggs. And I looked at them and just went, wow, because we do have little Isa Browns and black australorbs. And the biggest egg we've had was 96 grams. Which That's was hefty. enormous. That's huge for those little chooks. I know, I know. Normally they're about 60 to 70. But um, yeah, they don't live that many years and it's sad, but circle of life, what can you do? I know. I'm sure we'll continue our chicken conversation at some stage, at least once, because chickens are great for leadership analogies. But before we get on to more chickens, I would love to ask my first question I ask all of my guests. What does connection mean to you? Well, it kind of means everything. <laughs> connection is our lifeblood. One of the things I believe in is that connection is currency. And in leadership, how we show up and engage with others builds up our trust bank account. And you always want to have that bank account topped up because it doesn't take much to destroy it. That's for sure. It only takes a little bit of reputational damage, one faux pas, and that bank account gets voided. But that's kind of like the pragmatic transactional view of connection. But the more spiritual side or the more inhuman side of it, I guess, is that all of us need to be seen, heard, and valued. And that's what connection really means to me, is that you can be with someone, really see them, really hear them, and really value them. And to be that in return, that is what connection really means to me. Have you been reading Brene Brown recently? Because that's one of her most famous connection quotes. Yeah, actually, you're right that she does say that, is that we are hardwired for connection. And oh, I have this in one of my workshops. <laughs> it's such a long <laughs> quote, though, that's seen, heard, and valued. I was doing some my own thinking around it, about being seen, heard, and valued, and I saw the quote. I'm like, oh, yeah, perfect. But absolutely. So Brene Brown is probably the poster child for connection and what it means to be human and really connecting with one another. So, yeah, I resonate with her message completely. And the fact of being seen, heard, and valued is, is my message as well. 
It's mine as well. And another quote that I love is by Maya Angelou and she says, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I think that the more we can make people feel good about themselves, the better off we are and the more success we'll have as leaders and as humans in general, especially now with coronavirus and scary times in the world, the more I think we can reach out and give someone a virtual hug, given that physical hugging isn't going to be allowed for much longer, Mm. (laughs) the better off we'll all be as a society. I know. I've been thinking about this a lot. One of the trainings I do about building rapport is always having that human touch because it releases oxytocin, which is that the trust biochemical. And if we can't touch each other, how in the world are we going to help build those bonds of trust if we can't actually physically touch one another? There's lots of ways to do it. This actually concerned me a lot. I'm like, because I'm a hugger. You know, I'm going to see some clients tomorrow. I'm like, I just want to hug them, but I can't. So how do you do that? How do you create that sense of intimacy and trust and care? And our communication skills and our connection skills really come to the fore with this. And I think being generous and being supportive and being gracious and full of gratitude is a way to seed the sentiment or seed oxytocin, essentially. So we get oxytocin when we witness other people's acts of, um, acts of charity or acts of civility. And I think the more we do that, the more we can help spread that sense of trust and happiness and in the community. And we're going to need that more than ever as people get locked down and isolated through coronavirus stuff. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I was in Melbourne airport the other day and bumped into a friend I hadn't seen for ages and I went to give him a hug and he physically recoiled and sort of stuck his arms out and went as if to push me away. And I had a little giggle afterwards because I Obviously, it was a bit of coronavirus, but it was I'd also completely forgotten that he's not a hugger. And I'm sure he's incredibly grateful at the moment because people are not allowed to touch and he hates being touched. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, that's pretty good for all of those people who try to avoid physical contact and who see people like you and I who are huggers and just go, oh, God, there she is again. And they go, they're the virus spreaders. Stay away, virus spreaders. Yeah, it's true though. Like it's interesting how we are a pro-touch society in some ways. If you think about other cultures like Indian culture where the greeting is namaste and there's two hands pressed together, it's not hugs and kisses and handshakes. It's it's like I see you hands pressed together. The Western world is quite different that way. And if you think about some cultures like France where it's the kissing on both cheeks and to tell them, and the Italians too, to tell them, no, you can't touch, it's a bit of a cultural disconnect. And I think about all the people in our society who do not want to touch people. How do they actually build connection if it's not through touch? I know. There's a beautiful little video that I saw this morning. I think it was Prince Charles and he met somebody and he stuck his hand out to say, you know, to give the traditional greeting that he gives. And then he pulled it back before it touched the other person and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to break a habit of 60 years and I'm finding it quite difficult. And I just looked at that and thought, yeah, a lot of us are going to be going through that at the moment, breaking habits that we've had ingrained in us since we were children. Yeah. And it's a sign of respect not to touch. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. I'm curious to see what the next days and weeks hold for us all, particularly with the no touching thing. Mm. You've got some exciting things happening. 
touching and no touching, um, <laughs> including your next book, yeah. your fourth book, four books. I'm so impressed with that, which is coming out in May. Your fourth book is called People's Stuff, The Power of Perspective to Better Leadership. I think the power of perspective is something that is going to be so important for the rest of this year and probably beyond. Tell me about that. The power of perspective is how we see the world and how is how we be in the world. And you're absolutely right. When we become conscious that how we see is how we be, then we can be conscious about changing how we see to change how we be. And this is going to be really critical because we can look at the same events and have different responses to it. And I was talking to a colleague just before hopping on this podcast interview, and we were talking about, you know, there's some people who look at the coronavirus situation are like, yeah, whatever. And then there's others who are totally freaked out by it. And neither response is right nor wrong. Potentially, we can still respond with caution and not have a sense of anxiety with it. I think we can be dangerous in our cavalier attitudes too. But how do we make the best of a situation is an exercise in perspective. For example, what I'm exploring in my book is how we see ourselves first as leaders and then how we see others, how we interpret what's going on with them, and then how we see the world. And there is a practice of perspective that sort of frames the whole thing. How we zoom up and out, that's taking the broader, more expansive, longer term perspective. And we want to do that as far as possible into the far future as possible and looking into the past as far as possible to see as many patterns and big picture contexts as we possibly can. And then we also want to be able to discern and shrink down and make it relevant and poignant and salient and applicable to the now. So the exercise of perspective is one of zooming out far and wide and then zooming in and shrinking to the immediate moment. And it is a practice. Like you actually have to stretch and release and stretch and shrink. And between the two of those, we need to balance it out with wisdom and compassion. And wisdom is the best of our judgment, the best of our brain, the best of our mind, and compassion is the best of our heart. So we can do zooming out and zooming in without wisdom and compassion, and it will be incredibly hard-nosed potentially. But if we balance it with the wisdom and compassion piece, we can do it with great heart, with great care for the greater amount of people. So the practice of perspective is an interesting one and I think is going to be so important if we're going to deal with what we've got on our plate right now as leaders. I mean, our context is incredibly upside down. We're facing conditions we've never had before. We've got new realities we haven't had to face before. We have to show up and be different for folks and the same actually at the same time. And coming back to the connection part, we need to come back and be real and human and connected and grounded for the people that we lead. And that's not gonna change. In fact, that's gonna become even more important as we move through the changing times ahead. Mm. What are some simple things that people can do in order to demonstrate greater wisdom and compassion? It's an interesting one, like how do you actually gain wisdom? And there's lots to be said about that. The parts that I do is first of all, questioning your thinking. One of the dangers in thinking that you have enough wisdom is when you, in fact, don't have enough. <laughs> as soon yeah. as you think I'm wise enough, that's the point where you realize, holy cow, I don't know anything. In fact, it was Socrates who was quoted or paraphrased to say, is there one thing I know, it's that I know nothing. And I think that is the epitome of what we want when it comes to wisdom is to extreme humility. So we need to be humble enough in spite of our expertise, in spite of our depth of knowledge, in spite of our experience to know that we still have something to learn. So I think deep humility is, is the first part of developing wisdom. The next part is to have deep curiosity. 
that's actually going to feed the humility piece. So if we keep asking questions about what's going on, what can I learn? What else can I see? That will keep us searching out and ferreting into the different corners of an issue of a situation that we hadn't necessarily seen before and will keep us from hopefully jumping to conclusions and suffering from different cognitive biases. And the third piece, which kind of reaches over into the compassion side is care. If humility and curiosity balance with care, then we start to have a nice balanced approach to looking at issues because we can be all on the cognitive side without any heart and we can make some really strategic in quotation marks decisions and not do it with care for ourselves or for others or for the planet and the care piece helps bring out the best of who we are as humans and as leaders yeah i like that i remember years and years ago i had an opportunity for one of my staff to go to this amazing leadership program and he said to me no i don't want to do it and i said oh okay how come And he said, I think I know enough about leadership. I think I'm a really good leader as it is and I don't know what I could learn. (laughs) And I looked at him and thought, you're a 28-year-old man. Let me tell you, there is a shitload you still have to learn. (laughs) But because he didn't want to go, I just said, oh, well, I'm happy to take your place. Thanks. (laughs) And it was amazing. And I just the whole time thought, "You, you don't know what you don't know. And when you have an opportunity to get to know more, why would you not say yes? I know, it's crazy. And I think if you're working in an organization where the CEO or the leader, the person in the leadership role says, I don't need to do a leadership program because I've done it all before, then you know you're in trouble. Yeah. Cindy Wigglesworth, who's one of my favorite authors, she wrote the book SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. She says, the capacity of the organization is limited by the capacity of the leader. So it's every leader's responsibility to keep growing and developing their perspective, their wisdom, and their compassion. You know, the humility and curiosity and care piece is really a core attribute. And it's a huge moment when a leader realizes like, oh, I actually don't know everything. And it's a, it's a leadership transition that is quite confronting and hopefully they get to it. Mm. So I don't want to pinpoint or label people into thinking, oh, they're just an arrogant prat. They just have not yet got to the point where they can see more of the bigger picture to realize how little they see of it. Mm. it's like you're in a valley and you think that's the view of the world. And all of a sudden you start going up a mountain and you see a little bit more of the valley and you go, Oh my goodness, it goes, it stretches a lot further than I thought. And there's a house down the road and more of the picture becomes available to us. The higher up we go, the broader our perspective. So those leaders who think that they've learned it all, they're just not high enough up out of the valley yet. And they need some gentle encouragement to make the climb to see how much further they could possibly see. But I also think leaders who don't want to admit a lack of knowledge see it as a weakness. I was at a workshop a while ago and the speaker, the the guy that ran the workshop, is so highly regarded in his industry and he's known as being one of the best in the world at what he does. And someone asked him a question that was a little bit outside of his remit and he clearly didn't know the answer but he made something up so that he pushed his knowledge into a response that would kind of fit the answer to the question. And I'm just sitting there thinking, because the question that was asked was exactly my area of expertise. And I just thought, you've got no idea. And yet you don't know how to say, I have no idea. And is there anyone in the room who could help? And see, that's the humility piece. It takes a lot of courage and humility to say that. And to admit that, and that's, again, having the ability to have climbed up the mountain a little bit to know that 
you only see as much. And it's a leadership maturity piece. And it's a very scary thing. It's called the expert leadership stage where we're, we're put up on a stage, literal and metaphorical, as somebody who knows their stuff. And if we don't know our stuff, then to admit so challenges our sense of ego. And uh, it's incredibly terrifying to reach that moment. So my heart goes out to that poor person. I mean, it's irritating for you in the audience who's, who's the expert in the area who can say, I can fill that gap. What does he know? <laughs> does he, who does he think he is? I can do better. It's a bit sad for someone to watch someone do that because what's coming next for them is the humbling moment where you go, hmm, somebody else could have done this better. Yeah. And I so wanted to put my hand up and say, (laughs) actually, I think this might be helpful to you, but I thought, no, no, it's not my space. I will keep my mouth shut. But I did go up to the person who asked the question afterwards and said, if you need any further guidance around this, I'm always happy to have a conversation. Here's my phone number. (laughs) Well, that was compassionate towards the speaker and helpful to the the person (sighs) you were reaching out to. But uh, yeah, I was just dumbfounded. I'm just sitting there going, oh, you've clearly got no idea. And, but he's because I think he um, is so highly revered and regarded and people bow down when they hear his name. I suspect the humility piece is long gone in many cases. Yeah, yeah. We can get caught in that ego trap and it's, it's a dangerous place to go. And it's easy to do. It's easy to get caught up in that as well. And sometimes it takes another person to bravely say, I don't think you're quite right about that. And there's Mm. a time and a place to have that conversation. And in front of 50 other people, it's probably not it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right there. (laughs) (laughs) That was my judgment call then anyway. (laughs) Good one. Thanks. So what are some things that have shaped your current perspective of the world how do we actually, how do we develop perspective? And I've been thinking about this from a number of different ways. I think one way to develop perspective, and this has certainly been my life, there's the peaks and troughs kind of view of how we shape experiences, like the high points. And so for me, the high points are things like outdoors, adventure, working in amazing communities with amazing people, and running marathons, so really huge, big experiences. And then there's been the huge troughs, which have been massive challenges, which largely have been health related. You know, I had cancer in 2005. I almost died from asthma as a baby. Not that I remember that, but it's kind of an important piece of what shaped me and appendicitis. So I've had a lot of health challenges, which kind of take me to the edge. And each of those peak and trough experiences allowed me to think about who I am and what I'm doing in the world and what sense I can make of these experiences, because not all of them were fun and engaging, and some of them were. So it helped clarify and shape what my values are. I'm sorry, are you saying cancer's not fun and engaging? (laughs) (laughs) It is not. It is not. I'm trying to think. I I don't recall any fun and engaging moments with it. I remember some interesting things that happened. I remember coming out of surgery and I had all these tubes sprouting out of my body like a fountain. I'm like, holy cow, what's going on here? So there was well, I don't need to go through them, but there was a lot of tubes going on. I'm like, this is interesting. It wasn't exactly fun and engaging though. There was a lot of sort of raw moments, I suppose. Yeah, raw moments where things just really sucked. And it's kind of like coronavirus in some ways. You just Mm. don't know when it's going to end, how it's going to end, and if you're going to get through. And I think that's why there's a lot of anxiety around the coronavirus because of those types of questions. What's it going to mean for me? What's it going to mean for my family? What's it going to mean for my business and for my staff, my future? 
how is it all going to play out? And it puts people into panic mode. So I think these peaks and troughs shape our perspective and they shape our values. And then there's another sense of perspective too. And I was thinking about this. It's not just the peaks and trough, it's the sedimentary layers. And it's the little layers of everyday moments that fall like dust over and over and over. And I think when we bring our attention to those moments, it can be layers and layers of beautiful moments. And I think this is harnessing the power of mindfulness, harnessing the power of attention, harnessing the power of appreciation. And that can turn every ordinary moment into a spectacular moment. And I was thinking about how can I shift my default feeling to one that is more miraculous, more joyful. And it's in those tiny attention to the little moments that creep up and layer and layer and layer, like layers of sedimentary rock of just creating a solid foundation for me. So I think there's peaks and troughs and sedimentary layers. And then there's the exercise of perspective that it can help us see both, see the larger patterns, the, the peaks and troughs, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the lakes, the <laughs> whatever analogy you want to use. And then there's the zeroing in into the microscopic, the individual, the moment by moment. And that can help develop a sense of who we are and our place in the world and how we can best serve who we are right now and the people around us. I like that. I think the other thing that shapes our perspective is where we grew up and how we grew up. And, you know, for anyone who's wondering, you didn't grow up in Australia, you grew up in Canada. And I think even though on the surface, the two countries are really, really similar, they're actually not in many (laughs) key ways. And I say that with authority because I've spent many years of my life living there as well as a child and as an adult. And when I went back as an adult, I just remember being absolutely blown away by some of the differences that I thought would be the same. Oh, I'm so curious about that. So what did you observe as being different? The way people talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the, the meaning of different words and expressions and some language, but also just some social norms. I went over as an exchange student when I was 18 and the way that school was, was completely different to school in Australia. For example, here I went to a Catholic high school that was quite strict and I wore a school uniform. There I went to a a state-run high school that was no school uniform and had a policy of your adults, your young adults, and we're helping you become adults. So while we expect you to turn up at school and be respectful and do the work that we give you, it's your choice as to whether or not you do it. And the repercussions of not doing it are that you will probably fail, not that you'll have a detention. And it was that I remember the first time they said that to me, they said, if you're going to miss three classes in a row of a particular subject, please just have the courtesy to let the teacher know so that they don't worry about you or think, where are you? (laughs) But if you want to miss and not turn up, that's up to you. You probably won't graduate. And so you need to be aware of that consequence. Whereas here, I was late to school often because it was an hour and a half commute and if I missed the train or if the train was late, then I'd be late to school and I'd get detention, even though technically it wasn't my fault. Although the view was you could have caught an earlier train. That is a big difference in approach, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think when you have those two approaches as a teenager, then when I came back to Australia, I went away for university and it was really obvious to me the people in first year and in second year and third year at uni in the college I lived in who had had a very strict 
upbringing versus those who'd had, I don't want to say more casual, but had been given more responsibility and freedom and flexibility to make their own choices and decisions from a younger age. Because those of us who had a fairly strict upbringing, they went crazy. They went absolutely wild. And a part of me did that too. And all all I can think of in hindsight is if I hadn't had my year in Canada, I would have gone so much more wild in my first year at uni than I otherwise did (laughs) because I'd had a taste of living away from my family, even though I was with other families. It was a much more relaxed home environment. Awesome. One of the things I've noticed that's quite different between Canadians and Australians is in Canada, girls and boys are friends in a way yes. that, that yes. isn't the case here. Uh, it's, it's a separation, I guess. Uh, it's not as natural. And you can see that at barbecues. Like this was a, a thing when I noticed when I first came, we had the Aussie barbecue. I'm like, cool. And all the guys clustered around the barbecue and the women were elsewhere. I'm like, what the hell? Mm. <laughs> what is this about? Mm. And I thought that was really weird because I'd just come from summer camp environment where everything is equal. There yeah. is no distinction. We had male, female leaders and there really was no gender differentiation, except this one interesting part where we had what we call girls and boys club. And it was a rite of passage thing that we did on the last night of camp for the older campers. And the young girls went with the women of the camp and the young boys went with the men of the camp. And they had different ceremonies that we never talked to each other about what we did in our respective ceremonies. And that was the only time we did anything separate and it was to honor young girls becoming young women and likewise young men becoming men. Otherwise, we're all just all the same in together. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if it's changing with younger generations. In Australia? Yeah, in Australia, whether they are more, like I look at my stepson and I look at my young cousins and I look at my young niece and nephews and they've got female friends and male friends and they just go out in groups together which is quite different from how it was when I was their ages. Well, I hope it is different because the richness you get from having male and female friends is huge. Yeah. You can develop your compassion so much better when you can actually relate to different types of humans. Gender preference, sex preference, all that kind of stuff mixed into the bag. You know, it's not just a binary thing. It's a multiplicity thing. So the more that we engage with diversity, the better we're going to be as human beings in general. I completely agree. And, you know, like you, I've got really close male friends and really close female friends. And I've had some people who are not my friends say to my husband, how come you're letting her go out with him for dinner? Or how come you let her (laughs) travel for work on her own? Oh my goodness, really? Yep. Wow. And he's like, what do you mean? thinking you travel like this was a guy who said this a guy who travels a lot in his job and he then said I wouldn't trust my wife if she had to do that much travel for work and I just thought well that's a sad indictment on your marriage and I feel very sorry for her even more sorry for her than I previously did because you're a complete dick and now (laughs) you've just proven it (laughs) but Sean's had people say that to him a couple of times and I just think do I give up this vibe that I'm going to have sex with every guy I meet (laughs) because I don't have the energy for that thanks very much even if I had the inclination which I don't. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I guess there's a compassionate way to see that observation is that there's a very strong intimate bond between husband and wife. And yes, there are some filters there that are possibly not appropriate or relevant or helpful. And for me, when I, when I hear that, I just think how limiting that is for the person who's got that perspective. Me too. Um, me too. And the funny thing was with this co- one conversation, I was standing right there when Sean was asked his question. What? You were <laughs> I was standing right there. <laughs> and Sean said to the guy who, um, oh, my I won't say because it's not the most common of names, but he said to him, have you met Mel? I know you have because we've known each other for a very long time, but he, she's right here. <laughs> and he said, she's her own person and I trust her. Well, and I just thought that's what it comes down to, trust. <laughs> it's more than that. It's worldview as well and it's values. So your values shape your worldview. And if you, as you, you said earlier, you know, where do you get your perspective from? Some of it is from our upbringing and, and experiences. And until we develop the capacity to look at a perspective, to actually do this sort of weird out-of-body experience where we look at our thinking as a process, as an object in itself, then it's actually really difficult to get outside that. It's like fish swimming in water. They don't know they're in water until they're out of water. And until we realize that we actually have a worldview and we have filters, then we don't appreciate that those are a thing and that we assume the way that we see the world and be in the world is the only way to see and be in the world. So yeah. it's not just it's not just an opinion. It's actually, it's their lenses that they don't realize are lenses. They think that's their real eyes. Yeah, and I think thinking back about this, the person who made those comments didn't grow up in Australia. He had a very different upbringing to a lot of us and he came from a country or a culture that was incredibly patriarchal and the men were the main income earners, the women stayed at home and raised the children and I think he just struggles with the fact that it's not like that with everybody? Oh, it's so hard for people when you come from a different culture. Like one of my first experiences of perspective was in India. I had the great fortune of going to India at the age of 16 with my girlfriend and her family who were Indian. And so I traveled with them as part of their family. And we landed in Delhi and went out to their family home in this place called Ghaziabad, which is a little village uh, just outside of Delhi. And Shilpa had a cousin, Shilpa is my friend and her cousin there, And he basically schooled me on the Indian perspective of things. And I remember walking down the street with him and Shilpa and we, there was a coin in the gutter and it was full of filth. And he took two sticks and he spent five minutes picking it up. And I looked at it and it was like one rupee or some tiny amount of money worth like half a cent in Canadian dollars. And I asked him, I said, it's just a tiny amount of money. Why are you bothering? And he looked at me and he said, India is a very poor country. Money is really important. And mm. it kind of shocked me, like, because in Canada, you see a penny on the ground, whatever. You wouldn't bother. It's just a penny. And now, ever since then, every time I see coin on the ground, I always pick it up. And it's not because I'm a penny pincher. It's because he taught me to respect money and abundance and to appreciate it when it showed up. And I guess the other perspective he he shared with me, which I thought was was confronting for me, is we were talking about Indians' perspective of North American culture. And he said, the women in North America, because what they see with them was through TV, are all sluts. And I'm like, that <laughs> was a little confronting. I'm like, really? Tell me more. <laughs> what do you mean? And he said, they just walk around in bikinis all the time. They're just exposing all of their private parts of their body to the world. Like it's very 
uninhibited and he used his version of the word slutty. And I was like, oh my goodness, you really think that North American women are loose and slutty because in their culture, women did not expose their bodies in that way. They covered up with saris. I mean, it's interesting because the saris and the little brassiere type things they have are pretty exposing anyway, but they think not, like the part of the body that's exposed from a sari, which is all your blubby bits, is not a sexy part of the body from an Indian context. And that whole worldview shocked me also. I'm like, but we're not all sluts is what I wanted to tell him. And it's like, but he could not be convinced otherwise because what he saw in the bikinis was translated through his lens of that equals salaciousness and philandering and all the negative associations of somebody who's uninhibited sexually. Whereas I'm like, that's just hanging out at the beach. That doesn't mean that I sleep around with everybody. So that was my first exposure to different perspectives and based on how you grow up and your values and how different things can be completely misinterpreted. And you see that all the time with things like the burqa, you know, look at the burqa and people have different translations of that. You have the Muslim translation, which is that is modesty personified. And you have other translations of it, which is the burqa is oppression, which is right. It depends on your point of view. But it's important to, when we come bump up against people's opinions or points of view or make comments like that, like they made to you, Mel, like how could you let your wife travel alone? It can whack us in the face because it is two sets of values coming crashing at the coal face. And it comes from a whole history that uh, is subsumed and integrated and our hard wiring that once we learn how to look outside of that and look at it with a lens, with a telescope, with a microscope, with an x-ray, then we can unpick it a little bit and realize when we are being derailed by our biases and by what we think is the truth, but is really just a made up construct. Mm, It's interesting, isn't it? I put up a, um, a post on LinkedIn today about one of the ways we can connect is to say good morning when we walk into the workplace. And there's been a couple of really interesting comments from one person who said, I never used to say good morning when I walked into the workplace because I commuted on the train and I'd spent that time thinking. And by the time I got to work, I was so focused on what I had to do that my primary concern was to get to my desk and log on to my computer so I could just get the thoughts out of my head and onto the page. And she said, I didn't realize that that was seen as being unfriendly or unteamlike mm-hmm. until I was caught up on it. And I thought it's just interesting how people, something as simple as saying good morning, whether you do or you don't, the impact that can have based on your perspective of what courtesy in the morning looks like. Mm. That's a classic example of how people who are task oriented often get mislabeled as being unfriendly and unsociable, whereas really they just want to buckle down and get to work. And one of the key things I teach in my People Map Reading Masterclass is about deciphering that, deciphering the social cues and how often we get them wrong. It's often the task people who have to shift their behavior more than the relationship-oriented people. So those people who are naturally friendly and gregarious have no trouble coming in, saying good morning and smiling and checking in on people and sort of nurturing that connection piece. And they often don't think they have to shift much of their behavior too and being more respectful of task-oriented people and letting them get on with the work. So there is this this tension in the workplace around Mm. that. One of my most favourite shows on TV is Survivor. (laughs) And (laughs) you can all laugh as much as you like. I am used to it. I can't believe that show is still going on. It's like 20 years old or or, or, or. 
The American Survivor, this is its 40th season. Oh, my goodness. Yep. And <gasps> what's really interesting is the current season is called Winners at War. I don't like the war analogy, but I do like the winners. And so they've brought back 20 contestants who've won the previous out of the previous 40 seasons. So they've all won their million dollars and now they're battling it out for the title of sole survivor of the winners at war season with a $2 million prize. Wow. What's been really interesting is that a number of the contestants have said, I won last time playing this type of game and this time I'm going to increase my social game because being social is revered on this show. And if you look back at all of the past 39 winners, the vast majority won because they had built strong relationships and were social. And I think how does that work if you're a task-focused person on a game like Survivor? It usually doesn't. Well, the game like Survivor is the game of life, really. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. Such a great show. I just need to know, is, is Jeff, whatever his last name is, still the host? He certainly is. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. <laughs> yep. He and must be like 60 by now. I think he's in his 50s because it's been, there's been two seasons a year, so it's been going for 20 years. And I oh think he's in his 30s when he started. Yeah. He doesn't look much different. A wow. few wrinkles and that's about it. But there's also Australian Survivor now and um, Australian Survivor's in its fifth season, I think, and that's on TV at the same time. Very confusing when you love them both and the current season of Australian Survivor is bringing back contestants from the past four seasons and similar things similar things have been said that I need to increase my social game if I want to win this and the current Australian Survivor the contestants a couple of them had won they've got but they were voted off first Um, Mm -hmm. but the rest of the contestants have just played and not won and so it's interesting watching how they are approaching the game their second time around compared to their first time when they deem their first time to be a failure because they didn't win yeah it's connection is currency right yep they're building up that social bank account is it genuine that's what I'm also interested in. Like, is there a connection genuine or is it always with this agenda? Well, I guess they're on the show with an agenda, but can you have an agenda and also be genuine? Well, there's been some really good gameplay in past seasons. There was one guy in America who I think his name was Johnny. And at one of the episodes quite a way in, the family members come out. And so you get a few minutes up to a few hours with a family member. And he said to his family member who came out I think he said how's grandma or how's somebody and the family member said she died so he was distraught because someone he loved had died but that was a game that person didn't even exist he just played that card in cahoots with his loved one who came out so that it would win him sympathy and votes and help him win the million dollars and it got him through the finals does the audience vote on this as well or just the other no, people? just the people who are playing in the game. Oh, my so Oh, I know. That's disgusting. But clever. Very Machiavellian. Very clever. Ethically is a whole different story, but you've got to look at it from a gameplay perspective. It's incredibly clever. I want to look at it from a psychopath point of view. Well, I mean, there's that too, yes. So <laughs> one of the things, one of the books I'm reading right now is Against Empathy. 
And it's an interesting premise. The idea is that you don't need empathy in order to be socially successful. Like empathy is feeling what others feel. And I think it can be a disability instead of a superpower. Compassion is a better emotional frame where you can understand where somebody's coming from and want to help them. And he says that some of the most effective psychopaths understand people's emotions. They don't have compassion. They don't have empathy, but they can do the reading of it. And so they can generate emotional connection for a purpose. It sounds like these shows are just full of psychopaths. (laughs) I'm sure there's at least one or two in there. Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, we have almost reached the end of our time, and I'm very disappointed because I could keep talking for ages. (laughs) You've mentioned a couple of books that you've read that have Mm. really impacted you. Is there anything in particular that you're reading now or that you'd really like to mention that you think our listeners would be interested in? Other than your books, of course. I think my books have really impacted me because they cost me a lot of my time and energy. Um, This whole idea of what books impacted you, I think is an interesting question. And I thought about this from a couple of different points of view. One is I thought back, like, what are the books that really hit me emotionally? And there's two, they're both fiction books, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. I remember reading this as a teenager going, I was so upset by that book because it did not have a happy ending. And I was pissed off at Heathcliff, one of the main characters through the book, because I thought he made some really terrible decisions. And I was robbed of a happy ending. And I remember that hitting me like, books are supposed to have happy endings, and they didn't. And the other one that hit me pretty hard was, uh, as a young person growing up, was Anne of Green Gables, which is a beautiful book and a whole series. And this is a spoiler alert. So if you don't know the end of the first book of Angry Bills, close your ears now. One of the most beautiful characters in that book, which is, turns out to be her stepfather, dies at the end of the book. And I was traumatized by the end of that. Like, that's not right either. So both these books had non-happy endings. And that, I found that really quite confronting. And I guess it was the first time I really explored empathy and how disabling empathy can be. It kind of just rips your heart out. So those are kind of like the fiction books that kind of hit me hard earlier. Um, The Authenticity Accelerator, just to shift gears a little bit, talking about authenticity and connection, by Robert Rabin was a powerful little book also. I think partly because it was given as a gift to me from a mentor. And I really received this book in in a moment of being honored and, and felt really honored by receiving this gift. And I think the message of being authentic was really powerful in that book. My favorite leadership writer, kind of contemporary accessible one is Lance Secretan. He's a he's an American dude. And the reason I like his work is that he talks about leadership from an expanded perspective as well. That sense of oneness, the sense of consciousness, the sense of love and bringing wisdom into leadership are 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 ones that I think are really powerful in his work. And then I think there's the books that are on my shelf that I haven't read yet. And it's been years and they're also having an impact on me for the reasons that I'm not reading them, <laughs> which means <laughs> I, need, I need to be reading them. And one of them is by Ken Wilber and it's called Grit and Grace. And it's the story of when he first, well, he married, he married his wife and then she was diagnosed with cancer and she passed away. And it's the story of their journey through that. And I know it's a deeply powerful story and I just cannot bring myself to read it. Possibly because of my own cancer journey, I'm not sure. But there's something within me that is preventing me from immersing myself in that. Maybe it's my too much of my empathy piece that I haven't put down yet. I'm not sure. And the, last, the other one is similar and it's 
both of these books were given to me as gifts, by the way, and I haven't been able to read them. And the second one is called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. And it's a man who has also been given a terminal illness um, diagnosis. And he gives, he's a university lecturer and he gives his last lecture on living. And he died after, because that was the whole point of the last lecture. And I still have not yet been able to bring myself to read that. So I think those are two books that have had an impact on me and I have not yet read them. <laughs> so that's a bit of an irony, I suppose, or a paradox. At some point I will read them and see if I will have matured enough emotionally to process them effectively. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? I feel impacted by a whole bunch of books I haven't read either. And partly I feel overwhelmed because they're on the bookshelf and I bought them or I've been given them and I feel a pressure to read them, but haven't. Mm. But um, yeah, the last lecture, that's a book that I've wanted to read for a long time and haven't for the same reasons. Because I think confronting your mortality is a very hard thing to face. It's also a really beautiful thing to face. And I think you need to be ready for that. I think you have yeah. to invite it in. And those books are sitting there waiting for me, ready. The invitation is there. Mm. So when I'm ready to sit with it and have the spiritual journey that it will be in reading them, it may not even be an emotional one. I'm not even sure. It'll be a confrontation of shadow, I think. Mm. Part of the work I'm doing in my latest book is around doing shadow work is the is looking at the play, at the parts of us that we wish to hide away. And I think the, these books are probably part of that, the fear of dying part, maybe, I'm not sure. But um, they sit as invitations. I'd love to hear from people who have read them and what gifts they got from reading those mm. books. That would be awesome to hear as a way of, en- of encouragement. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It would be. So if people have read them and would like to get in touch with you or would just like to get in touch with you because you're awesome, <laughs> how can they? Where can they find you? Oh, you can find all my awesomeness at my website, <laughs> zoerouth.com, Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H. It's like Routh is mouth with an R. You can find me on LinkedIn and where else? I'm on Twitter, but I really don't work it up that much. And I'm on Facebook too. But LinkedIn and the website are probably the two best places or shoot me an email, zoe at innercompass.com.au. Great. I'll pop those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. I've loved this conversation and could keep going, but I have another commitment in about three minutes and (laughs) I'm sure you do too. So thank you, thank you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon and giving you a non-virtual hug. Thanks, Mel. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye. Thank you.